Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel. And Welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome John Krinsky, who is the co-author with Maud Simonet of Who Cleans the Park? Public Work and Urban Governance in New York City, published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. John, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so before we dive into the book itself and talk about the parks, I wonder if you might uh, tell us just a little bit about your interests and maybe how it is you arrived at this particular project. Well, sure. Um, so my first book after I uh, wrote my dissertation was on the politics of workfare in New York City. And uh, I'd been very interested in issues about organizing poor people. And workfare was a particularly interesting topic for me because there were, it wasn't really clear whether efforts organized workfare workers, that is to say, workers who were compelled, or welfare recipients, I should say, who were compelled to work as a condition of receiving their welfare checks. And when in the 1990s, uh, Mayor Giuliani of New, of New York expanded the program considerably, there were a lot of people who were upset, including a lot of workfare workers, and they began to organize. And what was yeah. interesting to me was that the organizers couldn't quite figure out whether this was a workers' rights campaign or a welfare rights campaign, because workfare, not only rhetorically, <laughs> but in many other respects, blended welfare and work. It made people who are on welfare working to receive their benefits not stats in not employees according to statute, which meant that they had a severely restricted set of rights. Uh, they did not get they were not defined as getting paid for the work that they did, but rather they were defined as compensating the public for the support that they got. And uh, there were all sorts of problems there then associated with that. And so that's what I wrote my first book on. And as I was finishing the book, I got an email from Maud Simonet, who is a researcher at the National Center for Scientific Research in a, they have what they call laboratories, even in sociology, uh, in a sociology of, sociology of work and economy lab at uh, the center, National Research, uh, Scientific Research Center in France. And she said, um, dear Professor Krinsky, my name is Maud Simonet. I'm a researcher at CNRS, that's what it's called, in, in Paris. And I, am research, I research the uh, civic service and volunteering in the U.S. and in France comparatively. And I was just in New York. I met a fellow sociologist, Nicole Marwell, who studies nonprofits, and told her about my project. And she said that we had very similar interests, even though they were in different kinds of fields. So what Maud was doing was studying volunteering 
as if it were work rather than only civic engagement. And so she was very interested in the line between what gets counted as work and who gets counted as a worker and who doesn't. So I was also interested in that issue, but from a different perspective. So Maud, being the amazing person that she is, uh, went the next day after meeting Nicole Marwell and um, went to Columbia. My book wasn't out yet and read my dissertation and then went, got on a plane and went back to France and sent the email. And she said, next time I'm in New York, I would love to have a cu cup of coffee with you. To, I think we have things to discuss. Would you mind? And, you know, if somebody says, I've read your dissertation, you don't mind. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're not, especially if they're not on your committee. Hell, if they're on your committee, you, you know, you'd, you'd, love, you'd love them to read. They went to the library exactly. and read the dissertation. Anything you would like, yes. Exactly. <laughs> All right, she wasn't on my committee. She wasn't my mom, you know. So, so when she came to New York, we, uh, we, had our, we met at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. There's a little cafe on the bottom. And we, uh, within 20 minutes, we were finishing each other's senses. And within three hours, we had a book project uh, that we had to postpone for a year to even get started. But Parks was particularly interesting to us because it was a place where we realized that the group of workers that I was most interested in and the group of workers that she was, was most interested in were both being put to work in parts alongside a whole bunch of other workers. And we didn't even realize how extensive it was, but that was the sort of basis for our the, the initiation of our inquiry. So so I am a I'm a former New Yorker. I've only recently left New York for for the wilds of New Hampshire. Uh, and in part for that reason I actually find this absolutely fascinating. Um, and, you know, sort of periodically wandered through the park and had thoughts about sort of who's doing that work and how is it maintained and why do they all seem to be dressed differently and, and working in different kinds of categories. But why would anybody who is not a New Yorker or former New Yorker actually care about the ways in which work is organized and funded in New York City parks? Yeah, you know, of course, I can't imagine anybody not really caring about <laughs> New York, but uh, but. But in, in all seriousness, I, I think that really what what we're writing about has really common dynamics in loads and loads of places and in loads and loads of different fields. Because what we're what we're writing about are uh, are processes by which employers, whether they're public or private, and I think it's really interesting and important that it, that it's largely a public employer starts to hive off different kinds of work to new categories of employee, usually at lower pay, very often with fewer rights, and also enters into extensive public-private partnerships with the either explicit aim to or uh, to them sort of uh, happy consequence that they de-unionize workforces and therefore also have fewer people saying, no, you know, you can't actually implement this that policy because the workers as organized won't, uh, you know, don't want it to happen, won't stand for it. Um, so this is actually, of course, going on everywhere else. It's, and and there are, there are uh, similar kinds of dynamics. I was just at a conference. I'm actually speaking to you from England right now. I was just at a conference in Manchester where somebody was talking about the community schools movement in Argentina and some of the tensions around uh, how to define community public schools as against private schools. And a lot of the same issues about uh, the, the sort of 
line between public and private, uh, who's responsible for what, who should fund what, all of these things end up coming up around these same issues in parks. And what was, what was interesting for us about the parks was that we were first interested in the sort of uh, the questions about work, right? How is it that all of these different categories of worker, and it's not just welfare, you know, workfare workers, but it's people who are in job training programs that replaced in or were, were a supplement to or replaced some of the workfare program in New York so that they were defined as employees, but only on six-month jobs that were renewable for three months. But otherwise, they had a fairly restricted set of uh, enforceable rights because they were only on the job for three, uh, six months. Um, but there were public workers of various different ranks, some of whom were doing jobs that uh, they that, uh, were in categories of work that they hadn't yet taken a civil service exam for because the city stopped offering civil service exams. I mean, very, you know, fairly complicated, but there were probably there were about a dozen kinds of workers doing essentially very similar work in the New York City Parks Department. So we were really interested. And sorry, that's, that's important, right? Because it's, it's, it's not like you're talking about dozen different kinds of workers doing different kinds of work. We've got supervisors over here and then the people over there who are cleaning. It's that dozen kinds of workers who have different labor protections, who are public, who are private, who are funded in different ways, who have different kinds of protections, who have different kinds of tenure, who who have access to unions, who have different kinds of access within the same union. And many of those people who wind up in these wildly different sort of, of, of protected categories of labor can still wind up being working side by side doing the same job, right? Yeah, sometimes. And I mean, it's, it's not really a full dozen doing all the same kind of work. It's distributed around their significant overlap. Um, and there are, of course, the supervisors. And, there, and it's interesting because there are several levels of supervisors and public supervisors and private supervisors. And that is all arranged differently as well. But, uh, but part of it is that they, they either could work side by side or in some cases, the Parks Department or the either the Parks Department supervisors um, or the Conservancy supervisors, let's say the private partnership organization supervisors, try to make sure to segregate some of their workforces so that, for example, volunteers aren't usually working alongside people who are sentenced to community service. It happens sometimes, but it's not it's not that frequent or volunteers aren't working with workfare workers or job training program participants. Why? Because they don't want, I mean, both of those group, those categories are doing either uh, free or, uh, or cheap labor, but they have very different kinds of uh, valuations attached to their worth. Right. So volunteers, you want to have them enjoy their experience and come back to work site. And workfare workers, you actually want them to have a really bad experience so that they don't come back to the work site. You can sanction them, throw them off welfare and, and can forget about them. Save some money. And save some money. Um, you know, and of course, the parks, the um, the park supervisors, their immediate supervisors actually want anybody they can get because the permanent staff of the parks department got so deeply cut that they don't have, they don't necessarily have a reliable workforce that'll, where they can calculate on a day to day basis who actually is going to show up to, to work. So, um, there are all kinds of, uh, there are all kinds of issues 
about who does the work and at the work site. But what, it, what we found out, though, was that we couldn't really understand that which we initially were interested in. That is to say, what was going on at the work site, how these different categories of worker actually relate to each other, both sort of as categories and as people, without understanding what was going on organizationally. And then further understand, we couldn't understand what was going on organizationally without thinking more clearly and trying to figure out how the whole system came into to being um, and what, were the, what was the sort of political economy of it? Who was getting, who was this benefiting and how could we figure that out? Um, so in, in a sense, our book actually moves in three stages from the workplace through a sort of organizational discussion and into one that, that speaks more broadly to urban political economy and therefore also has a more general uh, uh, application beyond New York. Um, so, and I, and I want to get to talking about the political economy of it. Before we do, I wonder if we can touch on two of those other pieces you just mentioned. One is just sort of simply um, a description of uh, the way the workforce itself as is segmented, that inevitably means that the work is segmented. So I wonder if you could just sort of talk about how that plays out on the ground. Maybe uh, if we if we think about who it is who cleans the bathrooms, for example, and what could we say about, can we characterize the kind of people who are likely to be doing that kind of dirty work within the yes. park? Yes, absolutely. And um you know, everybody in, in Radioland will be extremely surprised to learn that it is the workers of the, with the lowest status who regularly clean the bathrooms. Um, so the way this works actually is, is now actually under Mayor de Blasio, the work fair program uh, has ended in New York City. They're no longer assigning people to these pure work fair jobs where, uh, the, again, the workers are... Uh, defined as compensating the city for the support that they get rather than as earning their money. So there's, uh, but there is a large number of what are called job training program participants. So they're former welfare recipients put into so-called transitional jobs or the temporary jobs. And this group is about 75% women of color, black and Latina mostly. And um, they are, um, and they're the ones who are, are mostly cleaning, say, the bathrooms. Uh, they're also doing other tasks that loads of other people do, right? They will weed, volunteers will weed. I mean, weeding can be kind of dirty too. You're getting into the dirt, but it's not, it's not the same as cleaning bathrooms. It's not the same as uh, picking up uh, uh, excrement, uh, either dog or human or other animal that uh, does uh, sometimes litter the parks. Um, so those with the lowest status do the sort of most classically dirty work, um, typically. Uh, also, the other people who will be doing it sometimes are uh, community service sentencies. Uh, they do whatever they they do whatever the, uh, the whatever needs to be done. Um, so, so that's not that's not a surprise. Then, uh, just above them, you in the public sector workforce, you get um, the first, the entry level uh, public uh, civic civil service worker that doesn't actually have an exam. It's an, it's a uh, you don't have to take an exam to become a city parks worker, 
And then above them, you actually have to have a commercial driver's license to become an associate park service worker. And most of, and, and here the, the, the work actually changes a little bit because an associate park service worker, be, it mostly, what, mostly what they do is drive the uh, big garbage trucks because they, you need, since you need a commercial driver's license in order to drive one of those trucks and they have a higher pay grade, there are, there are not too, too many associate park service workers and those that are there are mostly driving the trucks. Um, at the same time, they are supposed to effectively be the ones who take crews of job training program workers and community service sentences, and at one point it was workfare workers, around in vans. I mean, that's mostly the way the park's properties are cleaned, is that uh, is they're with mo what are called mobile crews. So gone are the days when the parks department hired many, 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 many different, uh, you know, many, many workers. The, the number of full-time permanent staff is half of what it used to be. And it used to be that you had in all of these parks around New York and a lot of the playgrounds, I should say parks and playgrounds around New York, you had individual, they were called parkies who were stationed in the park. And they were really in charge of cleaning the whole park. They, they got a sense, you, you got a sense of what could go wrong. I mean, we had uh, a wonderful interview with, with one of the, he was then a supervisor, but he'd gone, he'd come up through the ranks. And he said, no, if, if you only do mobile stuff, mobile cleaning. You don't understand that you actually have to listen to kids playing basketball in order to know whether the rim is loose and whether it needs tightening. Kids sliding down a slide in the playground to know whether that's loose and some screws need tightening or the swings and whether one of the S-rings that holds on the swings need replacement. He said, those are the things you actually hear. I mean, he, he almost had this sort of sense of craft, even though he then said, oh, this isn't rocket science. He had a real sense of craft. And you don't get that if, you're, if you have a rotating set of people being driven around in a van. The other thing, of course, that you get when you have um, a majority male supervisory workforce and, um, and a majority young women uh, cleaning workforce is you get fairly systematic uh, vulnerability to sexual harassment. And we found that we found that a lot in the parks, and we found an interesting issue around that is that very often there was also talk about uh, these women who were put into the job training program looking to provide sexual favors so that they could get favors on the job. And of course, it was one of it, it had that kind of urban legend kind of feeling to it because nobody actually knew some, anyone who or people knew or people's friends knew, but nobody ever said, "Yeah, this is what I did." Um, and in fact, most of the most of what most of what we heard were stories about uh, supervisors who came up a little too, you know, who came up too close behind me to show me how to use a broom, or uh, or actually a supervisor who warned somebody else not to go mobile because their crew chief, um, oh, and I, I, I neglected to say that, um, the crew chief is usually a lower level parks worker who gets or who's supposed to get a little bump in salary up to close to the associate park service worker in order to drive around uh, the mobile crews. But 
in any case, the, you know, the, there was a supervisor who warned one of our interviewees about a certain crew chief and said, don't go on mobile. I'll put you somewhere else. And she said, why? And she said, well, you know, you've heard horror stories. And I said, well, what kind of horror stories? And she said, oh, you know. I said, well, I probably know, but why don't you tell me? Because this is an interview. And she said, well, let me put it this way. There was a mattress in the park house. And, you know, the park houses are these little buildings that are in playgrounds. There are a little office and usually in between a couple of restrooms. So it's a pretty sorted place to do your, uh, to, to, to do this sort of thing anyway. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, basically, uh, this is a, this is the kind of spirit of everyday exploitation that, that you're able to see when you're, when you're starting to see the segmented workforce. And I guess one other thing, you know, I was going to say, the, one of the other things that you see when you have a segmented workforce is exactly this segmentation, right? So that the people who are in the job training program are typically not hired into the parks department. I mean, there's always some sense that they could be. And, you know, there are definitely people in the parks department who are workfare workers who were job training program participants. So in a certain sense, they model the possibility of being hired. But the fact is, is that very, very few, a vanishingly small proportion of uh, workers who are in these jobs are hired because it's just like, and here's another sort of general, more general application. It's like adjuncts in universities, right? Why would you hire a, a full-time professor uh, why would you have open a junior faculty position when you can get the next batch of trainees to do the work themselves? So it's, it's one of those uh, horrible situations that I think loads and loads of people are familiar with now, where uh, the trainees are actually, in a certain sense, better employed than they w as trainees than they will be after they've gotten their qualifications. So I, I do want to turn our attention and talk about sort of the larger political economy issues. Before we do, I wonder if we could take a couple of steps back and just have you talk a little bit about what UN Maud did to gather the information that you did to come to this understanding to, of the parks and maybe talk a little bit about some of the challenges you had. In, in gathering information. Sure. So when we were beginning the project, uh, it was uh, it was still the case that city workers weren't allowed to talk to the press without clearance from the press office uh, of any city agency. It was a rule that was instituted by Giuliani, and it wasn't actually overturned until after we'd stopped, just after we'd stopped doing our research, uh, thanks to a suit by the ACLU. Was, you know, they they sued. On a, a First Amendment, uh, a First Amendment case, and, and I guess either I can't remember if they settled or uh, or whether they uh, got a judgment. But in any case, um, we were under the old regime, and we didn't really know that. But we went into park. Uh, well, first, actually, we decided that we would try to get our hands dirty and sort of understand what the work was like. So we tried to volunteer for the Central Park Conservancy, which is the big nonprofit group that has a master contract to run uh, New York's Central Park, which, of course, is this huge, iconic park in the middle of Manhattan. And we thought, you know, they had a program whereby they have a different system. They have something called a zone gardener in 50 different zones, 50 or so different zones. And they, they're sort of the people who are in charge of a certain portion of the park. 
And they had a program whereby two days a week, volunteers work side by side with the zone gardeners and so sort of become part of the, the cleaning team for several hours, for about six hours a week. We thought that's perfect. We know people, then we can interview them. We were kind of naive. At any rate, we, we, I, I went to, to uh, volunteer, I asked a volunteer in this program and I had to fill out a little paperwork. Well, there were four pages. The first page was my information and the next three pages were non-disclosure agreements. So that I couldn't write, uh, so that it was clear that we could write about it. And we tried to negotiate around it and saying, you know, we of course have our, you know, our university will of course make sure that it's anonymous and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it was a no-go. Now, it's sort of indicative of the massive uh, sort of uh, system of very different arrangements that govern the relationship of the city with different private partners, public-private partnerships around the city. Uh, that we went to Prospect Park, a uh, big park in Brooklyn, designed by the same people who designed Central Park. It's sort of Brooklyn's iconic park. And we uh, we tried to volunteer there, and all we had to do was sign our name and pick up a rake. And uh, so we did, and as we did, uh, we, we were set to work raking a big stairway that was covered in months and months of leaves in an area that had actually been left largely to the volunteers to take care of, which becomes important in a minute, because... We sort of started at the top and there were seven big steps. And about an hour later, we were at step two from after we started on step seven. And on about step six, a tree just collapsed and shat all over the steps. So had it happened an hour earlier, we'd have been underneath it and we would have been probably fairly seriously hurt. Um, So... This is part of what happens, of course, though. And, and the, the interesting thing was that the volunteer supervisor seemed as if this was not all that serious. And uh, Maud and I, of course, tried to not freak out. but uh, And we managed not to publicly freak out, though I think we were some, both privately a little freaked. Um, but, but, the, but the supervisor sort of treated this as, oh, well, this sort, this sort of thing happens sometimes. I thought, well, you know, if you actually had tree crews that were, I mean, of course, you know, things, you know, they slip, some can slip through the cracks, but if you leave a whole section of the park to be cared for largely by volunteers, it's quite possible that nobody knows how to identify a dead tree or knows that a dead tree needs to be reported. We certainly didn't. We didn't walk into the area and say, oh, there's a dead tree. Maybe we shouldn't be working underneath it. And so... You know, these are, these are really serious governance issues, it turns out. In any case, we, uh, we then also tried to go into a public park and talk to worker, uh, a worker. And the first worker we encountered was a job training program participant who looked uh, as if she'd seen a ghost. And she said, no, I can't talk to you. I can't talk to you. You have to talk to my supervisor. We went and talked to her supervisor, who was a city parks worker. Again, it's entry level. And he said, no, well, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. And so I'll talk to you, sure. And we went downstairs and we encountered his supervisor who said, hmm, maybe we shouldn't talk to them. And so I sort of had to go up the, up the chain of command. So I somehow, I mean, there's a longer story on how I, I did this, but I uh, contacted somebody in the sort of middle management of the parks department who actually gave us the green light. He, um, and put us in touch with a bunch of different uh uh, district supervisors with the instruction that they could decide whether that they wanted to give us access to their workers. And a bunch of them did around the city. And that's how we got the bulk of uh, almost 100 and, uh, well, about 130 interviews. 
um, on, in the Central Park Conservancy, since it's such an iconic park, we didn't want to let that go. And my, my parents are friends with one of the founders, and she helped me get in touch with the Central Park Conservancy brass, who then handpicked the workers that, that, that would talk to me. Now, no sociologist of work worth their salt allowed the boss to handpick their interview subjects and leave it at that. But at the same time, what was interesting was is that there was actually a unionization drive uh, by the main public workers union to try to organize the workers in this big nonprofit. And um, I knew a couple of people and MOD started to work on that side. So we had, on one hand, a sort of handpicked sample of Central Park Conservancy workers from management and a sort of elective sample of uh, very discontented union unionizing workers who ended up losing the drive um, on the other. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say that we, we know whether we got anything like an average Central Park Conservancy worker, but we did really get a, a very good sense of the kinds of issues that were at play uh, in Central Park. And I, and I take it you feel that that when all is said and done, you emerge with a, a reasonably comprehensive and accurate portrait of the workers and the work in the institution. Absolutely. And I think the, the and part of the reason is, is that there are very, very similar issues, whether you're in the, whether you're in the private conservancies or in the, um, or in the public sector, because really a lot of what people were, uh, to the extent that workers were upset, and I should, I should foreground this by saying loads of workers in the parks actually really like the work that they do. They're outside, they deal with people. And there's, there's, uh, among a lot of people, even people in the lower status uh, jobs, uh, they often have a lot of satisfaction. People like to be satisfied at work, I think, in general. So it's an important, it's an important thing to reinforce. But to the extent that they uh, were unhappy, it was very often very similar issues about um, the discretion of managers over the work that they were doing and the abuse and the abuse of that discretion, whether it was whether it was sexual harassment or whether it was uh, favoritism and passing over somebody for a promotion because they were kissing the you know they were kissing the manager's ass, so to speak. Um, so you know there's 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 a lot of different um, there are a lot of different varieties of this complaint, but the the work sites were both sort of set up uh, such that this happened very frequently. So on the conservancy level, it's largely because it's not unionized and the workers don't really have any recourse. Um, on the public side, the workers are unionized, but either the, um, but the job training program workers who are about half of the cleaning workforce, even though they're technically unionized, if they're only there for six months, they don't really have, um, they don't really have effective grievance procedures. And their supervisors themselves are part of the same union. So it makes it very difficult to enforce. Um, it makes it very difficult to enforce the kinds of uh, workplace-based uh, limitations on discretion uh, that, that can lead to abuses. Um, so we've been speaking with John Krinsky. John is a co-author with Maud Simonet of Who Cleans the Park? Um, so, John, why don't we we now sort of step back a little bit and and if you would talk a little bit about sort of in larger terms why you think this matters, why you think this matters in terms of how we think perhaps about larger labor markets, how we think about the the ways in which different forms of neoliberal forms of urban 
what organization and economy manifest themselves and anything else that you think sort of on the macro level convinces people who are not yet already convinced that they should actually care about what's going on in the parks department? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. One is that uh, one of the big things that you see with respect to uh, the way that the park system as it was constituted in New York affects the urban political economy. I should also say that loads and loads and loads of cities around the country have looked to New York's model. Um, So, and and have looked to to either adapt it or replicate it. Um, One of the things that it does is it starts, even beyond the workforce, it it starts to raise the question about how public public space is. And uh, and who's it for? So, um, the Parks Department, starting in the 19, early 1980s, and the city was just emerging from a fiscal crisis that was also, uh, that had some, uh, if, if you think about the 2008 financial crisis, there, there were certain things that it had in common, including banks that uh, were making uh, some fairly uh, bad investment choices and then visiting it upon the taxpayers. But the... Uh, the city was in a fiscal crisis. It laid off a lot of staff, and it decided to try to enter into these public and pioneer these public-private partnerships uh, by helping to form the nonprofits, the very nonprofits with which it would partner. So the Prospect Park, Park Alliance, the Central Park Conservancy, uh, the, the the Bryant Park Corporation. All of these were encouraged to form by the city. And they manage the parks, their respective parks, very differently. Their models have been sort of replicated in, in various ways. And as they have, one of the issues, uh, big issues, has been um, about how they fund themselves. And whether it's public funding that goes into the, these parks or whether it's private funding. And if it's private funding, what are the costs of that? So, for example, Bryant Park, which is a sort of a, a small park in Midtown behind the public library, uh, very, 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 very busy. Underwent a, a thorough remodeling. It's, it's very nice. Tons and tons of people use it. But a great deal of the park is actually given over to commercial activity. And that commercial activity generates revenue for the, for the care of the parks because the Bryant Park Corporation arranged so that it would be able to keep 100% of the concession revenues in the park. Now, that arrangement isn't generalized, but but the big thing that parks conservancies want to do very often is keep concession revenue. Now that means that it wants to, that they want to make a park experience that will generate money. And then all of a sudden you might be in another park that has a similar kind of model and the, the hot dog vendor is replaced by a fancy food cart. That, so instead of charging, of course, you know, $2 for a hot dog because still a, a cart in a park, um, you can spend, you know, five fifty on a gourmet sandwich, and all, or significantly more. I'm, I'm lowballing it, but uh, but the the issue there then is who gets to have the full experience of the park and that, of a public park, and the answer is people with money, and so that's that's sort of one way that the that. Um, that this affects both the political economy of the city and also the experience of the city itself. Another way is, another way, and I think, yeah. Sorry, if I could just interrupt, there's one other way in which that plays out, it seems to me, is that as part of that sort of process, 
the the policing of who is appropriate to be hanging out in that park also winds up perhaps altering so that there are people who maybe maybe who may look less like they can afford that 550 sandwich who may not have the luxury of taking a nap on a bench and be moved along so that the space gets closed out in that kind of way too that certainly happens um, and I think one of the really interesting things about that is there's a force a, a sort of a, an unarmed parks enforcement you know, sort, of, sort of police light security force we'll call it are called Parks Enforcement Off- uh, Parks Enforcement Patrol, or, or PEP officers. And what, one of the things that's really interesting about this is that the city began to, as it formed these partnerships with conservancies, made arrangements with these conservancies that they would, in effect, pay for the presence of PEP officers in their park. So you can get a situation where one of these conservancies, which are often, and this is the, the next sort of step, are often involved sort of local real estate owners, at, at the very least, and business owners, uh, who see the park as a, a, a local asset. Um, they actually raise money and private money, and with that money, they rent public workers to enforce rules in their park. Now, one of the things that happened there was, was that these, these arrangements became so widespread that at one point, uh, a small park in Manhattan, had, a very small park in Manhattan, had four PEP officers assigned to it because it had a conservancy. And there had gotten down to two PEP officers for the entire borough of the Bronx. And there was an outcry and city council held hearings and the city decided to hire another 80 PEP officers. When the city, the city did a big round of, of park hiring and one, you know, one could think, oh, that's wonderful. Finally, the city's getting the, the message that they, it actually has to beef up its, uh, up its public workforce. And it did sort of, but uh, some of those positions were made sort of a permanent part of the park's budget. So they don't have to be renewed in the same way every year. It's, some, it's a budget process called baselining. And some of them weren't. The ones who were baselined were the, were the PEP officers because the city, needed, the city needed them in a certain sense or were, use, were using them as revenue generators, but then realized that they couldn't only do that with the PEP officers because there was a sort of outcry about the legitimacy of, that, of those arrangements. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's there's a definitely moving people along, but that moving people along, who moves those people along, is also affected by this arrangement. Um, the other piece of this, of course, is that um, it's long been known that parks are really great for the real estate values surrounding parks. Now, um, you know, when Central Park was developed, actually, there were a whole bunch of property owners in. Uh, what was then, you know, far upper Manhattan, um, who were who were fairly upset that their land was uh, that their land might be taken by uh, the the city to to build the Central Park, and they fought against it, and finally they lost. And then, very shortly after Central Park opened, they realized how wrong they'd been because their property values shot through the roof. And so it's. It's been well known, at least since the middle of the 19th century or the late 19th century, that this is an effect that parks have on urban real estate. Now, that only holds true, however, or holds, I should say, most true if the park is well maintained. If you have a dirty, dangerous park 
it doesn't do a heck of a lot of favors for um, for urban real estate. Now, the the important part of this for us was that here we have a system that's actually in many different ways driving down the pay and rights of the people who maintain parks. And as they as those pay and benefits and rights get driven down, the parks are nevertheless getting cleaner. And because they're getting cleaner and in better shape, and even if that's also with conservancies and the money that they're putting in, what's happening is, is that there's an enormous, and I mean enormous, uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars benefit from being around the parks. And so, there's, so that the people who own real estate are actually very much benefiting directly from a system that has grown much more exploitative to the workers. And that's another, that's another piece of the sort of larger pattern of neoliberal governance that we're, that we're looking at in, in the book. I know that this is not something you get as far as doing in the book, but do you have, um, if, you, if, you, if you had a magic policy wand, in which direction would you wave it to begin to sort of to begin to make up for some of these inequalities? Are there some, some politically doable things that you think should be on the agenda? Well, I think, yes. I think uh, on a basic level, uh, there needs to be more public workers, full-time permanent public workers hired in the parks department. And the de Blasio administration started that process, but really, I think, uh, very half-heartedly. It's, a, it's something of a pattern. Um, but at least got the message that that was some that was part of the direction that we needed to go in. And I think that's right. And I think, you know, the other thing that the de Blasio administration did, and this is very interesting, was that it decided that there were all of these parks that really had been underfunded from a capital point of view. Uh, you know, they hadn't gotten their equipment replaced, uh, for example, in 20 years. And uh, when you say 20 years, it means under mayors Giuliani and Bloomberg. And they were typically in really poor areas of the city. And, and that's partly because the actual capital improvements to parks are often done through allocations from city council members. And if you're in a really poor area and you have loads of other demands on those allocations, like how can does the city council member... Uh, you know, help a daycare stay open or, uh, you know, by fixing its ceiling so it's up to code? Or does it put the money into, into replacing playground surfaces? It's the daycare that's going to get it and not the, not the playground. So the de Blasio administration said, okay, this has been a fairly unequal system. What we're going to do is something called the Community Parks Initiative, and we're going to, we're going to identify neighborhoods uh, where their parks have been badly neglected and put a whole bunch of money in to improve them. And what was, uh, what was very interesting is that we, we were talking to a, uh, a former Parks Department and Conservancy employee, somebody who was a, a, a longtime uh, fixture and, uh, in, in the Parks Department, um, who then retired and then became uh, the head of Parks Advocacy Organization for a while. Um, and she said, you know, what breaks my heart is, is that in a lot of these neighborhoods, people are really suspicious of it. Because every time something improves in the neighborhood, it doesn't end up being for them. In other words, what happens, right, is that you then put money into public money into improving the park. And then the real estate values go up. And all of a sudden, there's real estate speculation. And it pushes out the tenants for whom it was presumably for in the first place. And 
So, you know, part of the other interesting thing I think about the book and some of, and part of the thing that, that we want to sort of raise is that it's not just parks. Parks gives us a way into thinking about what else needs to happen in order to make the city more equitable. And so that sort of, uh, you know, it sort of bleeds into uh, some other work that I'm doing now and a, a sort of an article that I'm, I'm dreaming up. But, um, but it's a, uh, but, but I think that the, the main thing is, is that it's a, uh, it, it helps us think about much more generally what an equitable city would look like. And, uh, it's, and that includes thinking about who's doing the work that, that makes every, everybody else benefit. Um, but it, it does, it's, it's not only limited to that. And I think that's sort of where we end up is that, that looking at these questions of work actually opens up this much broader view. And that, and that would be true of, of Oakland, Sacramento, Topeka, as well, you know, as well as New York. We have been speaking with John Krinsky. John is a co-author with Maud Simonet of Who Cleans the Park? Public Work and Urban Governance in New York City published in 2017 by University of Chicago Press. Uh, John, thank you so much indeed for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.